At the heart of the Christian faith is the concept and doctrine of regeneration. When we use words like regeneration, normally people look at you and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or why regeneration might be essential to the Christian faith and, or in its meaning. Well, let's break the word down really fast this morning before we get started. It simply means to create again. And I think it makes sense why creating again would be essential to our understanding of what God has done for us. It is, after all, what we celebrate, and it's what we cling on to as we long for the day that He will create again a new heaven and a new earth. We're familiar with the concept of regeneration, I think, more than we're probably aware. When you fall or trip, while walking on the sidewalk and you scrape your knee and you find that abrasion and the skin's no longer white or whatever color, but it's now red because it's been left behind on the pavement in whatever form, you watch over the coming days as your skin literally creates again itself. It regenerates itself. It's amazing what our bodies are capable of doing through God's design. Spiritually, we understand that our spirit, whenever we are born, is born dead as a consequence of sin, is marred and wounded by the effects of the sin in our world, but God reaches out and creates in the believer a regenerate life. The first step in salvation is God's regeneration of the spirit, and that this life giving us the ability allows us to respond to God's grace and His goodness. Regeneration is important. It's how we understand our relationship to God. It's how we understand our relationship to each other. And it's even how we understand our relationship to ourselves. In our second installment of the study through the book of Nehemiah, we've picked up so far after the rebuilding or the re regeneration of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. And we followed along just like the skin cells and our knee might recover themselves, Nehemiah has brick by brick rebuilt or regenerated the wall that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Of course, it doesn't mean much if we only look at the surface. God cares about what's inside. And that's exactly what we've looked at as we've picked up in Nehemiah chapter 8, at God's regeneration or His reconstruction in the hearts of Israel's worship, no longer looking at how the wall was rebuilt, but now at how God is working to restore the spiritual life, spiritual vibrancy, spiritual worship of the people set apart and chosen by God. I'm reminded uh, as I consider how important regeneration is to our faith of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. When he warns, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Our greatest concern as Christians is not physical well-being, but spiritual well-being. What is demonstrated for us through the narrative of Nehemiah is nothing less than the same method that, dem that Jesus demonstrated during his earthly ministry in meeting the physical needs first and then ultimately being concerned with the spiritual needs. As a church, our focus must be ultimately on spiritual things. We must admit that as long as we are waiting for the consummation of the things to come, the marriage between Christ and his regenerate creation, 
We are all, much like a bride, looking forward to her ultimate wedding day. We wait for putting on the white dress and for walking down the aisle, for listening to the the trumpet sound and catching rice in our hair and everything that will come with it. We long for the day of consummation. This is the state of the church as we wait for Christ's return. And it's important for us to recognize this. Because while we wait, we continue to endure. There are physical burdens that come with being on this side of eternity. To ignore the physical reality of suffering, of affliction, of needfulness, would be to ignore the actual reality of what it means to be a Christian. Hear me this morning. When we say that our ultimate concern is spiritual wellness, that does not mean that it is our singular concern. Ultimate simply means most important or last to come or final goal. The ultimate reality is what we are building up towards. It does not mean it is singular or that it exists on its own. We have to care about physical things just as much as we care about spiritual things so long as the physical does not get in the way of what is ultimately most important. This is not an easy topic to approach. The issue of how God regenerates all things Things is a question that the Bible itself addresses as a mystery and as something hidden but now revealed. Looking at physical realities without spiritual health has led to false gospels being proclaimed that are short-sighted and focused on only what currently exists in this world today. Even white versions seem to propagate themselves within the most conservative and biblically-sounded congregations as a form of a light version of the prosperity gospel. This way of thinking that puts our physical wellness above our spiritual wellness ultimately takes a low view of God. It's detrimental to spiritual health because we're no longer focused on what we should be focused on. How do we combat this? The knee-jerk reaction would, to say that be, would be to say that physical things don't matter at all and to only focus on what is inside or what's, on, what's internal. But if you cut your leg, you are not worried about just the outside healing. I think you definitely want the inside to heal along with it. We must be concerned with both. And we must approach them with the biblical authority and biblical clarity that God has provided us in His revealed Word. So far in our study, everything that we have seen has been an act of immediate regeneration. Over the past three weeks, as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah and picked up in the spiritual revival that takes place after the wall is rebuilt, when the people gather in the city square and Ezra stands up on a platform and begins to read through the book of the law all day long and the people weep and they're responded to by the Levites telling them to take that grief and allow it to be regenerated into joy. We find the focus placed on an ultimate goal of spiritual renewal. God delights in us understanding what separates us from Him because it is through this understanding that we are actually able to draw close to Him. Imagine that. If nothing else, grief has a tremendous benefit to the Christian life in the fact that it allows us to recognize our position in relationship to God. 
It allows us to remember things that are beyond us. It draws us closer to Him because it puts the understanding that we need to have a relationship with Him. Last week, we talked about how confession translated itself to God's glory. After reading, the people came together and gathered with Ezra and the priest and the Levites and Nehemiah, and they read the law again, and they found it recorded that they were supposed to practice what was known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And they immediately turned around, read God's Word, and applied it. They took the time to, for seven days, set up these tabernacles and to dwell outside with the stars above them, relying on God. They worshipped Him, coming daily back to the Bible or the law and reading it. And on the eighth day, they gathered again. And they told Ezra, Stand up and bless the Lord our God from everlasting to everlasting. And Ezra began a wonderful prayer and confession, not just about the sins of Israel or the sins of the people leading up to this point, realizing that since the days of Joshua to the day that they had returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall, that they hadn't celebrated the Feast of Booths, even though God had commanded it to them. Ezra begins in saying, God, you have created everything. You have upheld everything. You have sustained everything. Everything that I see around me declares your glory. God is glorified because Ezra confessed the truth. Something interesting. Confession's really gotten a bad rap. We, we think of confession and it always means something bad, but the reality is to make a confession about God, if someone was to ask you this morning, and in fact, all of you have been commissioned with this, that as we gather as a church, that when you stand, when you sing, when you worship, as you listen to me speak, as you open up your Bible and consider what we will be reading this morning and how it applies to your life and what it means, you have a commission to glorify God in doing that. If you're sitting with a posture and your head's drooping to the side and maybe the dulcet sounds of my voice are just soothing you to sleep, I'm very thankful that I don't have a soothing voice. I can make it real raspy. I can get people to wake up. You're supposed to be engaging in this process. I mean, it's difficult to see because you're all out there and I'm up here and I'm standing on this platform and there's this wooden plank. It looks very much like what Ezra must have had as he was reading the Bible to God's people. But the people were not disengaged as he did that. They were engaged in every word that he read from God's law. You this morning are here to glorify God. Glorify him. How is it possible to glorify God? After all, have you heard the things that I've said about humanity from this pulpit? Miserable, wretched, depraved, incapable of doing anything good without the work of God inside of them? I think you guys are awful people. I think I'm an awful person. How is it possible that such a wicked group of humans could glorify the almighty God who created heaven and earth and sustains it? by saying the truth about him. What a remarkable regeneration. What an incredible, mind-titillating idea that our confession about an almighty God 
brings him glory. And the truth is, he's glorified with or without you because he's glorious. Holding to our discovered theme of regeneration is the only viable source of revival historically and in our present day. Today, we will explore the relationship between physical affliction, the burdens of this world, and the ultimate deliverance of God in our lives. If you'll be patient with me this morning, and if you'll engage with the text as I attempt to discuss it, you should be able to leave this place with a greater picture of the way that God redeems us, not just from spiritual destitution, but also from physical afflictions. Does that sound like something worth knowing? Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. We will pick up in verse 9 and read through verse 15. But first, let us ask the one on whom we rely to help us. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and this day. Lord, as we read your word, give us understanding. Grant us a relationship with the Spirit that interprets your words for us, that we might be able to apply them to our lives rightly. Help us to see the Son and to know his sacrifice for us in a better way. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 9, Verse 9, And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Our first point this morning is that God sees, hears, and remembers and knows the afflictions of his people. Remember where we're picking up this morning. Ezra is still praying because we're in the middle of this prayer. He's just finished. He's been asked, glorify God from everlasting to everlasting. He's begun by recounting creation. And then in verse 9, he picks up, you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt. And he recounts the cries of the people of Israel while they were in Egypt and God ultimately delivering them. The reality is, though, before we can really talk about this, can I say one thing? Egypt wasn't so bad for the nation of Israel. And I think uh, there's something that we do in our heads. It's like the aftertaste syndrome. 
Even though something might taste really, really good, but if it has a terrible aftertaste, we end up not liking that thing. Egypt was a great place for the nation of Israel. Actually, through God's provision, that's what gave Israel much of its wealth. Joseph went into Israel and established himself as second highest as only to the king. And for many years, the nation of Israel and the descendants of Abraham were blessed as they dwelt there. Egypt's where the nation began to flourish. The first part of God's covenant that was established with Abraham, that he would create him a great nation, is fulfilled in Egypt. That's where the descendants became numerous. In fact, it's because the descendants became numerous that Pharaoh, or the son of of Joseph's Pharaoh, actually ended up revolting against him or, or was concerned that they would revolt against him and put them under bondage as a form of controlling them. And I do think that bondage was a miserable time. But I think it's important to note that even in their suffering in Egypt, God accomplished something that was necessary for the nation of Israel to be blessed whenever they entered the promised land. It's because of the exodus that the nation of Israel was really able to be established as a peculiar people. In the moment of our greatest affliction, the urge to view God's care for us as completely absent is really detrimental to our walk as Christians. The reality is, is that God is present. He never stops being present. He never stops caring. He never stops listening. He never stops hearing. He never stops knowing the afflictions that we are going through. In Exodus 2, 23 and 25, we read that during the days, those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God sees. First Peter 3.12 gives us clearly the picture that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to all their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sees the afflictions that His people are going through, and He sustains them through it. We must have the right mind about that. God hears. Psalm 34, 17, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. God listens. He's a good listener. He's not like the friend that gives advice whenever you're not asking for advice. He's not like the husband that tries to fix everything. He's not like the wife that makes, um, that, that, that tries to fix everything. God listens. And He holds all things in His control and all things in His, in His sovereignty. And He allows them to happen as He carries us through them. God remembers Psalm 105, verse 8. God has remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. He's made promises to His people not only to sustain them, but in this case, as Ezra is speaking, I think specifically the promises that He gave to to, um, Abraham are significant. In the time of Exodus, to sustain them and bless them, to curse those that curse you, to bless those who bless you. 
God remembers the promises He makes. There's no reneging. There's no renegotiating. There's no, there's no change or shift. He remembers and He's absolute. He's completely sovereign. He's perfect. He's indispensably eternal. He doesn't change. He's immutable. He's amazing as He holds the promises that He has made. God knows. Sometimes just recognizing the magnitude of who God is and how great He is, what it means for Him to be holy, it's easy to sit back and say, well, God, you may keep your promises. You may hear my cries and my suffering. You might see them. How is it possible that you could know what I'm going through when you are eternal, that you are spirit? Because in order to accomplish this, He allowed the Son to become flesh, to walk on earth as a man, to experience temptation and trial like you, to suffer at the hands of man, the worst form of death ever instituted throughout human history, so that he could become a great high priest who is not only able to sympathize, but is able to understand and comprehend every suffering, every suffering and every trial, every affliction that you have ever gone through and more than you could possibly comprehend, bearing for himself the sins of the world that he might be, take on God's wrath, that he could bear on your behalf God's wrath that you deserve, that you would not have to experience it. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting, Ezra is told to do. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us that God knows that before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What does this tell us about God's knowledge that all of these understandings, all these comprehensions, they didn't just take place in a specific point in time, but as Peter would write in 1 Peter 1.20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Christ was crucified. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world for all of humanity. He's not only borne the, the, the sins of the world at the cross, but in God establishing creation, knew the things that would happen throughout human history and intervened and planned and had this concept that He would save you. From the beginning of time, He has been carrying you. And while we might be tempted in our afflictions to turn away or to think that that isn't true, we have the whole canon of Scripture that affirms how God has upheld every promise that He has ever made, how He knows, how He remembers, how He hears, how He sees. We take great comfort in that. It would be difficult not to. In fact, if we don't take comfort in that, I would ask, do we understand it at all? Do you believe that the Word of God is true? Do you believe that the Bible is clear? Do you believe what the Bible has recorded, what Paul wrote to the church in Rome in Romans 8.28, that the love of God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose? Do we really believe that? 
Or have we, as a church perhaps, become so caught up with fighting against a fake prosperity gospel that we've actually turned the other side and ignored what the Bible has to say about God providing for us and sustaining us? I say this is difficult to address because it is a real problem that people would stand and abuse the Word of God and declare things that are antithetical to Scripture and say that God ultimately cares about our wellness on earth. God cares. Let me, this is what the Bible teaches. God cares more about our holiness than He does our happiness. And I'm thankful for that because the ultimate concern that we have as a people who want to glorify God, who want to make confessions that glorify God, is that we would be a holy people set apart for His glory. That His working and His every covenant that He has sustained, every promise that He has put before us would be sustained in the way that we glorify Him. If we're actually able to believe that, why do we despise what is immediately perceived as affliction so much? Well, why do we revolt against things that seem not to go the way that we want them? Have we placed our own will above God's in an order of importance in our minds? Or do we believe that God actually works all things together for good, that affliction might be good for us? Do we believe that suffering can actually draw us closer to God? Do we believe that anguish can bring us to a place of knowing His grace at a greater, in a greater way? Blessed, be blessed for you should seek God more. Charles Spurgeon wrote, There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. This is why regeneration matters. Our view of suffering is not that our sorrow or our affliction will be plucked from our lives and replaced with joy. When we say that our sorrow will be turned to joy, that is to say that what we have in mind is God's work. But that the very sorrow which grieves us will be turned to joy in God's glory. Spurgeon again said, God not only takes away the bitterness and gives us sweetness in its place, but turns the bitterness into sweetness. Put this in your head. This is an amazing reality. God's plan of redemption is not just that He would consume with fire everything that needs to be cast away because it's bitter or it's suffering or it's anguish, but He's going to transform it. What has He done in our own lives? He has taken what is wicked, what is depraved, and He has transformed it into something holy that glorifies God. The second point this morning, God is leading those who He calls. He's leading those who He calls. He's not fleeing those who pursue Him. This is... I think very important, and let me just put it in plain terms instead of relying on my notes because I think I'm short on time anyway this morning. God is leading those who He calls, not fleeing from those who pursue Him. Many times when we talk about suffering, our concept is that we have not pursued God enough or that we've not ran after Him enough or that we're not within His will and that God's keeping His grace from us until we've come to a place of Christian maturity that we can experience all of those things. But the reality is this. God does not flee anyone. 
Since the moment you are saved, if we understand regeneration in its proper order, you were regenerated before you could confess Christ. He's been pursuing you from the beginning. Every revelation made about God through creation in the Bible, everything put together, God has been pursuing those that He leads. Our picture in our mind of being chased or chasing God so that we can eventually have whatever He has for us is backwards. And Nehemiah makes this note, doesn't he? What did God do for the people after they were led out of Egypt? But He led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night for them that they would walk in the way that they should go. Through suffering, our goal should not be to pursue God, but to allow Him to lead us, to take the steps and to walk in the steps, to experience the things that He's leading us to experience, that we might know Him better, that He might be glorified more, that in a confession of His absolute sovereignty, we might know Him more. All of these things working together because God is at work. When God led the people out of Egypt, did He do it so that He could glorify the people? No. What does verse 10 say? You made a name for yourself. God declared His own glory in the way that He was able to work things together. The Bible does not teach us to view our lives as something absent from God's provision and guidance. Rather, we are living in the culmination of God's revelation. We have a great grace. The army of Egypt tried to pursue God along with the people of Israel through the Red Sea, but they were hurled into the depths like a stone into raging water. In the wilderness, with a pillar and a cloud, God leads His people. In the wilderness, God gives them an immediate delivery and a progressive fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham. God's interaction with humanity through history isn't parsed out. He is the same God progressively revealing Himself to a temporal people. I find this incredibly amazing. I find this particularly marveling. Because oftentimes when we talk about biblical history, especially books like Nehemiah and Judges, and I mean, guys, Judges is a tough book to read. It's awful people doing awful things. That's pretty much the whole book of Judges. Why do we read these Old Testament texts? Do they matter for the church today? There's some megachurch pastors who would claim that we've separated ourselves from the Old Testament. There are pastors that say that the Old Testament's no longer relevant. Some of you guys probably even listen to them without realizing it. I have no space for that. Because my view of God is not a God that needs to change his mind over time. My view of God is that he's perfect and complete and that everything that he does is perfect and complete. These things have a complete and inspired way of influencing our lives. And watch what God has done. The first covenant that he establishes with people is with Abraham. And in fact, that's where Nehemiah or Ezra begins as he begins his prayer talking about the establishment of this covenant as God chose Abraham and, and told him that he would give him this land and everything else. That's in verse 8 or verse 7 and verse 8 of Nehemiah chapter 9. And now he's moving on to what we would call the covenant given to the people in the, with Moses or the Mount Sinai covenant because it wasn't just with Moses. Consider for a moment what this actually looks like. In Genesis chapter 12, 
when the Bible makes the historic shift, no longer recounting just what was happening in creation, but becomes hyper-fixated on one man and one family. When he looks at Abraham and he establishes this covenant, God promises that he would show him a land where that all of the land that he could see, the land of the Canaanites, would be given to him. That he would make Abraham a great nation. That God would bless those who bless Abraham, curse those who curse him, and that God would use the blessings of this new nation to bless the whole world. In Genesis chapter 15, we find, particularly in verse 17, the ceremony for this covenant, this promise that God has given him when God commands Abraham to take animals and to split them in two and lay them out before God as a sacrifice before him. And while Abraham is sleeping, God, in the form of a light, this is uh, Genesis 15, 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. The same language is used as Ezra recounts what happened for the nation of Israel at Egypt. God parted the Red Sea and the people of God passed through these divided waters. The covenant of God is progressively revealed, not just in the relationship and the promises that he has established with Abraham, but in establishing himself as their people. And he couldn't have done this whenever Abraham was just there. How could he establish a people when the promise was that God would establish a people? Now that the nation of Israel has flourished in Egypt and all of these things have come to culmination, and this is marvelous as we look at the suffering of the people of Israel and everything that they've gone through. In more recent times, the Babylonian captivity, the Persian captivity, and the returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the wall, and the trials cast upon Nehemiah by Sambalat and Tobiah and the Amorites and everyone else. And here they are rebuilding the wall, and we see God's picture culminating together in this marvelous picture. And God's covenant isn't one directional or two directional, but it's one covenant progressively revealed at one time. And we see God has fulfilled this establishment of a people. And the covenant is not just there to establish them as God's people, but to establish them together. It's not just vertical. It's horizontal. Some people will call it the Mosaic Covenant, and that's because Moses act as, acted as an intermediary between the crowd and God. But the covenant at Mount Sinai, that was all of the people engaged in this promise with God that they would be his people, that they would hold each other accountable that they would sustain one another, that they would encourage one another, that God gave them this true law, Ezra says, as this one unalienable, universal, and just law, this real affliction of the nation of Israel and Egypt was that they would be established as their own people, that they would become sojourners. Imagine the real affliction of the covenant with Abraham it's much like being given a car. It's like being given the keys to the car, but you have no driver's license. You promise God's great blessings, but you have no real way of jumping in and taking it for a spin. 
God establishes this people together. He gives them a law as a way of conducting themselves, as a way of glorifying Him, as a way of knowing who He is, as He's showing and disclosing who He is to them. And where does this end? It ends with the new covenant. The covenant of grace where Abraham's blessings ultimately fulfilled. Because in Genesis chapter 12, he doesn't just promise that he would establish this great nation. He promises that through this nation, he will bless all of the nations of the world. That there won't be one person who's exempt. That everyone will be accepted into the family. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that they would be grafted in. That those who were far off would be brought near. Which is the real promise of suffering in this world. That God would bring us near to Him. That we would know Him. That we would go through the Christian university of suffering and trial. That we would know how to turn to Him. That our hearts would be so close to God that we would know what it means to know Him. Our viewpoint. As humans living in a particular time, in a particular world, often sees God's redemption as just a series of events. But God's perspective is greater than this in that He holds all things eternally. Beginning after, beginning before. Beginning before and ever and after He holds all things in eternity. He sees all things at once. This covenant's not just revealed in this little sprinkle here and this little sprinkle here, but what He has given to humanity is the ultimate culmination of the things that He's won. That's why it's so marvelous that as we gather together as a church that we can say that the Bible is complete. That all of canon has been revealed to us. That all of it has been preserved throughout history. That these 66 books are literally God-breathing words into our life. That regeneration isn't just taking place in a world that continues to decay, but it is seen most clearly in our lives. As we look forward into the present and even beyond, as we consider what it means for God to remember things or for God to know things, 1 Peter 1.20 continues to come to mind. I quoted it once, I'll quote it again. Foreknown before the foundation of this world, the Lamb was slain. What has God done through Christ the Lamb? What has He done in slaying Him before the foundation of the world? He has made peace with us before we were even able to understand what He was doing. What makes the gospel message or the Christian message so compelling is that there's not one Christian who knows God that God did not know first. What makes it so compelling? What makes it so moving? What makes it so touching? What makes it so impassioned or emboldened? Is that I would be incapable of knowing God if He did not show Himself to me. I would be incapable of knowing Him If he did not remove the veil of sin in my heart, I would be incapable of wanting to know him. I'm incapable of reading the Bible and understanding it unless I have this relationship with him. This can be marred by so many things in this world, most notably my own sinful nature, my own arrogance, my own lack of humility. Is arrogance and lack of humility the same thing? I think you guys know what I need to confess. 
Oh, I do. I despise the nature that's inside of myself. I, joking in Sunday school this morning, I said, you know, the, the truth is I really do think I'm the smartest person in the room most of the time when I walk in. And I say that as a joke, and it really is a joke. I think even whenever people think that I'm stupid, they just don't understand me because they're not capable. Isn't that awful? Now, really, apply this to reading the Bible. All right, God, I'm going to figure this out for myself. I'm going to figure, out, figure you out for myself. Isn't that awful? There's other sins that I could confess. I could make you all feel very uncomfortable if I listed them all out, but I'll stop there. God's done the work. If there's any humility in me at all, it's God's work in me. It's God's transformation in me. And he hasn't forgiven me or justified me or set me apart or he didn't die on the cross. He didn't suffer God's wrath. He didn't bear my sins to Calvary so that he could be resurrected. He didn't do that because he knew what I might become. He did that for who I was. And despite all of that, he made me who I am. And he's not done. Because from my temporal perspective, these things are still being revealed. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still finding out who God is. I'm still finding out what he wants. I'm still learning how to worship him, how to come close to him. I'm still learning that I am not the smartest person in the room by far. I'm still learning that I need God more than I ever have needed God. No amount of training, no amount of seminary, no amount of suffering, no amount of of how much the Bible I've read or how much I've outlined, no amount of biblical interpretation, even the original language won't help me in knowing God if I don't submit to Him. If I don't recognize the truth about who I am in relation to Him. If I don't confess, and what does confession lead to? God's glory. God's glory in me as he regenerates not just that, but as we come full circle this morning in taking my affliction and looking at the provision that he has provided the people. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. When we start talking about affliction, it's very easy to list out all of the things that we wish we would think that we would be better off without. God has already given us an abundance. An abundance. And that which we have neglected to take seriously. He's given us His word. He's given us true life. He's given us regeneration. My question this morning as I close is simply... How could you fulfill what Ezra was commanded to do in bringing glory from everlasting to everlasting to the one God? What chapters of memories do you hold on to that you look back and you say that they were suffering and anguish and nothing good came from them? I I don't think that the people of Israel were wrong whenever they said that Egypt was kind of a bad time. That was a bad chapter or a bad season. 
I've got bad chapters and bad seasons in my life. I'm sure you do too. Can I not look back on them and get rid of the aftertaste effect and see that God was actually doing something through them? Have we taken the time to rejoice in the way that God has brought us closer to Him? Beyond that, are we willing to endure suffering and trials as the Bible promises and warns us and exhorts us to be prepared for? Are we willing to embrace them in a way that would glorify God? Because if we go through suffering and we're able to see God upholding us through all of that, but we're not able to walk through suffering again, we haven't really understood what God is doing in perfecting us, in refining us like fire, in making us pure like gold. Beyond that, am I willing to see what God has revealed progressively throughout history? Am I willing to see myself as a part of the nation of Israel, grafted in, those who were far off, brought near? Am I willing to see myself as a part of God's chosen people, commissioned since Genesis chapter 12, to be a blessing to the whole world? Or am I so short-sighted that the only world that I see is that which I live in? Father in heaven, I pray that you would bless us this morning as we seek to understand your word, as, you, as we seek to know how to apply it. God, we come to you with humble hearts, ready to accept your exhortation in the way that you would guide us. And God, we rely completely on the way that you would lead us. God, help us to be a people that would glorify you. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who are sick this morning, those who are unable to be with us. God, I pray that you would uphold them and sustain them and that you would give us the wisdom to know how to minister to them, that they would be blessed, that their needs would be met, and that you would use us to do it. God, as we stand together this morning, we pray that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?